0: So in this gathering, I want to continue the theme that I started with last week, which is bringing awareness and wisdom and skill to difficult situations involving uh, speech or communication. So I want to go further with that theme and... Um, I think probably bring in a few exercises during my talk, which we'll do sort of on the spot, a few practices. And I have to say that um, this theme has um, energized me quite a bit, particularly in the last day. I noticed that um, I had at least one dream last night, very related to the talk. And that's interesting when that happens. And I'll I'll tell you about the dream in a little while. Okay, so it was quite interesting. Um, and this is part of a larger series that I've been giving of talks on generally the theme of deepening our practice during the pandemic. And that by practice, I've been holding a broad conception of three core areas that we could call practice, and practice really means to uh, be taking life as the opportunity to grow and learn in love, compassion, wisdom, and skillful action. It could be a synonym for what practice is. And so I've been holding that sense of practice as occurring in three broad areas which interpenetrate or interrelated. First, our formal meditation practice, that which we do with some focus, uh, looking at our own individual consciousness, which of course is not separate from the awareness of others and the society and so forth. And then, secondly, Our more informal practice, what we do, as it were, during the day in relation with others. Sometimes that might involve work or community. Uh, A lot of our speech practice is going to be in that context. And then the third setting or the third area is our participation in the larger society and world, which could be through work or could be through activism, could be through different things. And we've looked um, initially at a number of different themes, including the centrality of uh, mindfulness of the body, how to work with reactivity. You know, As many of you know, I like to interpret dukkha, which is translated usually as suffering, in Buddhist context, I like to interpret dukkha as reactivity so that the very center of Buddhist practice is working with and transforming reactivity, typically the fairly unconscious or automatic pushing away of something which is unpleasant or painful, or the grasping after that which is taken to be pleasant. Again, that has meaning in the individual realm, the relational realm, and the larger social realm. We've looked at working with intention, how to connect formal practice with informal and relational practice, and the foundations of skillful speech. So this, I think, is the eighth talk in the series. The previous talks are all... uh, Recorded and they're at the website uh, Dharma Seed, which is available to anyone, uh, uh, freely available, d-h-a-r-m-a-s-e-e-d.org. And so we've had three, found, three sessions so far on the foundations of wise speech. I identified first the, really the, what we get especially from the historical Buddha, the ethical guidelines for skillful speech to be truthful, helpful, come from a good heart, kind heart, and uh, have appropriateness, especially good timing. And I, you know, I went into more detail on that. I also had a uh, session, especially last week, I think, or two weeks times ago, on the, quality, you know, on the foundation of being present, mindful, during speech, that could mean right now, being present to your body, being present, not just caught up in the thinking realm as you listen to the talk, or as I give the talk. You know, long time ago, one of my teachers, uh, John Travis, gave me the assignment: if I'm taking the teaching role, he said, do your preparation, and then ground yourself in the body, in the belly, in your heart and let your thoughts self-organize. So that's my aspiration. So, uh, so we, that was, uh, I think, two sessions ago. And then a third foundation for uh, skillful speech is the practice of empathy, of deliberately having the intention to connect with and understand another to reach some kind of mutual understanding and, uh, and, if possible, collaboration. Last week, I took us further with wise speech by going into the area of working with difficulties or challenges in our speech situation, which pretty much means in our relational lives and in our social lives. And I, we had a kind of a, a survey, survey initially. Uh, I asked people to identify, people did this in the chat, what are some of the challenges of speaking and communicating? And we could have a long list and go on for quite a, quite a while, especially if we go into uh, the social realm. And I'll just mention what was named by people. One one person spoke about having, it's difficult when I try to write the script of what the other person should be thinking or doing. Another challenge was when difficult emotions come up, like anger or fear. Another challenge was having a lack of confidence in one's own ability to articulate what was important to give one's own side of a particular discussion. Sometimes the emotional tone of of the other person can be very difficult and can be sometimes paralyzing or uh, very hard to work with. Uh, One person said, I'm afraid uh, that I might upset the other person. And I start to shut down. I'm not honest, I don't uh I don't communicate clearly. Another uh when I get very uh or actually here when I don't get any verbal or uh nonverbal feedback from the other person when it's I guess hard to read the other person. Another one when I'm having a conversation with someone and the other person is Seemingly distracted, texting, or, you know, I don't know, answering a telephone call from someone or whatever. Um, uh, another one when there's a big emotional charge. Uh, for another person, when I'm speaking in uh, a language that is not my native language, when I'm speaking and it's hard to uh, articulate what I, what I want to say. How many people can identify with at least one of those challenges? How many can identify with 3 or 4 or more of them? Okay. So they're very they're very very common. And I also mentioned that one of the core reasons why some of these situations are difficult is that there's reactivity in my experience or in the other person's experience are very commonly in both of our experiences. And, and remember that I was uh, defining reactivity as this sort of compulsive way that we grasp after something or we push away something. So examples of being uh, reactive in that way would be when I really want my point of view to quote unquote win or when I'm judgmental, when I'm blaming the other person, or when I'm just uh, really somehow maybe shocked at what the other person has done or said, or maybe I'm shocked at what I did or said, or I get just really confused, or I just get into anxiety and I want to withdraw. And so often some kind of reactivity is right at the center of things. And so uh, what we did or what I did last time was to identify eight different ways of working skillfully with speech situations. And today what I'm going to do is to focus on two of those, particularly how we do inner work when they're difficult speech situations. So I'll mention the eight. And I think what I'll do, especially today, is focus on doing inner work when there are difficult speech situations, which again often means when there are difficult relationships. Difficult, difficult relationships with people I'm close to, co-workers, neighbors, or uh, with uh, political leaders, Could be that could, that could be part of it. So here are the eight. These are the eight guidelines I gave last time. I'm sure there are more, but eight is a good start for how to be skillful with difficult speech situations, the ones we named, and we could have named, uh, you know, 50 others. So here are the eight, and then I'll focus this time on inner practices, and if we reach some completion there, next time I'll focus especially on outer ways of responding. So here are the eight. First, clarify one's intentions. Do I really want to connect with the other person, if we're talking about two people? What's my intention? Do I want to reach mutual understanding? Do I want to manifest love and wisdom in action? Or do I want to win? And of course, we're in, in this first guideline, uh, I'm encouraging a skillful intention. So suggesting that something like reaching mutual understanding can be very helpful. Uh, and again, we could have we could talk about the intentions for activism or social action as well. What's my intention? You know, is it just to vent? Or to dump on someone, demonize someone? Or is it a broader intention, maybe to have a, uh, a broad, uh, be part of a broad movement, for example? Second, work with the foundations for skillful speech that we've named. And here I'll say that the second is working with the ethical guidelines, being truthful, helpful coming from a good heart, and uh, having good timing. Those all have nuances and complexities, but if we work with those guidelines, that can be very, very significant. You know, I mentioned when we covered that how I actually still have on my wall near my telephone uh, the four guidelines that are that I placed there when I worked once with a group where we worked with these four guidelines for six months. So I would often say a telephone would ring. I would say, "Truthful, helpful, good heart, good timing." Hello, or something like that, right? So we can we can do that or do that before a meeting. I also was uh, part of a, a group of teachers, and they agreed to, that I would uh, mention these guidelines at the beginning of every one of our meetings. So you can you can you know, could bring that in. The third is one, another one of the foundational uh, areas of wise speech. It's to, be, it's to develop more presence. When we can be more present, we know, or we have a better chance of knowing when we're reactive. Very, very crucial. Can I be present when I'm speaking and communicating? I'll, I have more freedom. I'm generally more authentic not so caught up in just this particular thought, and it can be very crucial. A fourth uh, guideline for difficult speech is cultivating empathy. And again, I'm, do, I'm suggesting empathy as a practice in which we try to have mutual understanding. A lot of the difficult situations involving speech and communication are ones in which uh, my heart becomes blocked. My natural empathy becomes blocked. When I'm judgmental, it's virtually impossible for me to be warm and kind. They exclude each other. When I deliberately cultivate empathy, I can start to bring that natural kind heart back in again. Uh, A fifth guideline, which I'm going to focus on more uh, today, is do the inner work with what's there for us, which could include reactivity, difficult emotions, difficult body states, getting caught and being judgmental, and so forth. The sixth guideline is uh, what I'm calling watch for what uh, makes it hard for us to actually be skillful which watch for what takes us away from even being able to engage. And this could be, I'll talk about this again just in a moment, this could be our own conditioning around conflict or anger, which leads us to shut down. It could be what we call spiritual bypassing, using spiritual rhetoric not to deal with things. You know, know, like, I'll just let it go. I'm a spiritual person. Okay. So we'll come back to that one. Okay. Uh, Seventh, try to address the needs of all concerned as much as possible. And then the eighth is practice role plays. And for the difficult ones, do rehearsals. You can practice maybe with a friend. And we, I think we may we may do some of that in one of our sessions, where we can do actually some role plays. They're very illuminating and really help. Uh, they've been used, uh, as many of you know, in all sorts of training situations. Whether tra- we we use them in our trainings on wise speech uh, that I co lead with uh, Orange J. Sofer, and we they've been they've been used. Uh, we used extensively and. In social action, including the civil rights movement, maybe i'll even bring in a uh, you know a video from that okay so those are the eight so i'm going to focus for the rest of the time here on working with uh doing inner work or inner practice as part of being with difficult situations it's really uh Partly seeing what gets in the way of engaging and then actually being able to be skillful with anger or anxiety or fear or reactivity. That's what I want to focus on the rest of the time. And again, I think uh, time permitting, I'll do some, uh, teach some practices or exercises which we could take home. So this first area is watch what gets in the way of even, even starting to engage with a difficult situation. And so I mentioned uh, that there could be spiritual bypassing. I'll come back to that. There can be uh, a kind of fear about difficult emotions or difficult conflicts, or, or conflicts in general. And that's very, very widespread. I certainly had the conditioning to be afraid of conflicts. In my own family, which was I think quite a loving family, still conflict was something which was generally suppressed. Anger was suppressed. I did not become fluent in being able to be skillful with anger or even able to work with conflict. When I've actually done polls of people, uh, this is in the United States, uh, when I've been teaching, because I like to teach, I, I often teach on how to be skillful with conflict. I sometimes do one and two-day trainings on that. And when, I, when I've done polls, I've found that a significant majority have had the conditioning to be conflict avoidant. How many would say that's true of you? you can raise your hands. Yeah. So I'm seeing, you know, roughly two-thirds or more maybe close to everyone I'm seeing on my screen of about 25 of us who have that conditioning. Again, it's related sometimes to a fear of anger and an inability to access anger. It's a very, very deep conditioning, and some of what we have to do if we're going to be skillful with uh, difficult speech situations is to do a certain amount of inner work with being willing to open up to anger and conflict, it's not easy. You know, it's. Um, I think it late. I think next year I will teach a training through Spirit Rock on working with conflict. I typically once a year do a two or three day training in that. I think I'm going to do that next year, um, and so that is one way to work with that. It's. It's. It's not something one can usually do quickly. It takes some willingness to go into it, noticing the conditioning, you know, maybe first practicing working with conflict where it's a little bit safer. Maybe your friend or your partner has the same conditioning. Now there are trainings. These days probably there are wonderful trainings online for being more skillful with, with conflict. Uh, and so that's that's crucial. And we also can have uh, uh, emotions like anger, as I mentioned, get covered over, um, you know, and it's it's not easy. I think if we were really in touch with our emotions, a lot of us probably would be angry a lot of the time. So some of not being so angry is, to, uh, uh, is that a little bit of a survival mechanism for many of us. You know, I remember... I remember there was a, I don't know if it was a bumper sticker or a slogan said, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention, right? And and there's some truth to that, right? And I was, you know, and I think that some of us uh, actually uh, suppress our anger just to be somewhat balanced. You know, I was reading an article yesterday, um, you know, is the current president planning a coup? Uh, around election time, and you know, and there are people talking about violence, and people using the word fascism, and so forth, and could lead to a lot of anger and fear, and I think we somewhat suppress this, and we need places to work with this, or uh, we can also have our emotions covered over, again, because that's happened in our families, or a lot of uh, gender conditioning uh, can have us suppress certain emotions, you know, You know, when they've done research, uh, they have found, this is true for the United States, that uh, uh, most men have uh, not very much fluency with emotions. This was certainly true of me. And that the one emotion which men generally have access to is actually anger. At least uh, giving out anger. And the, the other side of that is that Generally, women are more fluent in emotions, and of course, women are the generally uh, historically been the caregivers. I think 75% or more of psychotherapists are women. Women have, and actually, the research shows that women are generally more empathic than men, and it's not clear what the reasons are whether it's conditioning or you know, uh, the connection with almost like evolution over many, many generations of women being the primary caregivers of children. So it's not clear about that, but it's... And then also a large number of women, large percentage of women, they tend to suppress anger, right? And so there are all sorts of reasons connect with social conditioning why it's hard to access emotions. So that uh, a certain amount of inner work in all that areas is really important. How many can identify, you can raise your hands again with having received some of the conditioning that I've, that I've named, right? I think it's, it's quite, yeah, it's quite, quite widespread. And you know, you add to this, I could go on with all this for a while, but I'll I'll try to be brief. There's also, um, I think I have seen in Buddhist communities quite a bit of, uh, conflict avoidance as well. I have seen in communities I've been part of and heard of others where uh, Buddhist communities are not so good at dealing with conflict and anger, and there can be a lot of confusion about it. Some of it even has to do with the translations. Some of the words translated as anger probably shouldn't be translated. They're closer to hatred. And so a lot of reasons why there can be uh, tendencies to shy away from uh, conflict and and the emotion of anger. Again, um, there can be also what I was calling spiritual bypassing, which is using spiritual rhetoric or talking to oneself to avoid dealing with something. You know, and again, uh, very, very common. I could, you know, I mentioned last time, it could be, oh, I'm having a difficult situation. I'm a meditator. I keep equanimity, no matter what happens. I never get angry. I'm cool. I'm spiritual. Or it might be, as I mentioned earlier. Oh, I just want to let go of this. It's not really important. I'll let go. We probably, if we, if we worked in the chat, we could name a lot of other ways that there are spiritual bypassing. And the term was coined by someone whom I knew, uh, John Wellwood, who was a psychologist who died a year or two ago. And uh, a friend of mine did a wonderful uh, short story called, uh, uh, this is Marianna Kaplan, did a short story called Zen Boyfriends. And this was about her encounters in the world of dating Buddhist men. And according to her, a lot of them were practicing spiritual bypassing. And so it's a very nice short story. You can find it on the web. Look for Zen Boyfriends. It was actually made into a theater piece, which was pretty interesting. And uh, so you can find it. So the, some of the dialogue... Um, You know, I remember it goes like this. Marianna's talking to, let's say, Jason. And she says, Jason, I think we need to talk together. I've been upset about something. Jason, who is the I who is upset? It's me. I'm upset. Who, Jason says, who is the I who is getting angry? And she gets angrier, and she says, "It's me, I'm the one and you know you can imagine how the dialogue goes on, you know, please see your anger in the broad net of causes and conditions that lead up to this moment <laughs> right and uh, you know i won't I won't give you the conclusion, but anyway that that's that's spiritual bypassing right that that can very well be even if that what Jason was saying has some truth to it, right? But, you know, it may be that because of all, some of the reasons uh, related to conditioning, personal history, family history, we're actually using spiritual rhetoric because actually we don't have the capacity to deal with things in a certain way or we were scared of it and so forth. So that can be a barrier to even doing the inner work. So I know for myself, learning meditation and actually personally engaging in psychotherapy were tremendous aids. And then of course what happens in relationships, tremendous aids to having access to emotions. But meditation was very significant because I could actually start to have room for emotions that didn't have as much room normally and so one of the main ways that we can uh, work and I'll come back to this one of the main ways we can practice and do the inner work is through mindfulness but first I want to say a few things the inner work is important even if the other person bears a tremendous amount of responsibility for the difficulties Right, that. Generally, those who study relationships say, let's say with two people, everyone has at least some responsibility. It could be 80 and 20, 80% and 20%. But we have some responsibility, typically, even if the other person may, in some ways, have, have more. And then I wanted to give you a, a model that I've developed in, uh, in looking at wise speech, which is a model... This Imagine two people engaging, and there are five possible modes of practice for those two people. The first is one person does his or her or their inner work. The second is that, let's say that I, let's say the first one is I do my inner work my inner practice. The second is I'm committed to skillful speech practice. That's the second. The third is the other person does uh, inner work. The fourth is the other person is committed to skillful speech practice. And the fifth is we collaborate together. and we work together cooperatively, we have agreements, maybe we even do some role playing together and so forth. So ideally, there are these five areas of practice. That's the optimal, the, you know, the optimal relationship, whether it's at work or a friend or a partner, whatever. And guess what? Are all five of those always available? No. Right, but two of them are always available. Which are those two? The f- the first two, that's right. That's very important because often when we have a difficult relationship or a difficult interaction or experience, we may withdraw, especially if the other person is not so cooperative or as in some of the examples people gave last week where there maybe someone else is stonewalling or won't communicate or not cooperative or doesn't have an inner practice. My commitment to my inner practice and my wise speech is very, very significant. So that's important to remember because it's very, very common that when we think the other person won't cooperate, isn't, doesn't have an inner practice, a spiritual practice, oh, I give up. It's hopeless. And it's actually not true. And that actually my own commitment to those first two areas can actually sometimes, and actually very often, make a significant difference. And so, again, in my inner work, it's helpful to come back to my core intention. Can I have the intention to learn from the situation? Can I take uh, responsibility for my own experience, my own reactivity? So touching base with one's intention in the situation is so crucial, especially coming back to what could be exciting, Even with a really difficult situation where the other person is stonewalling, from a certain perspective, if I'm learning, it can be really exciting, right? How can we keep that perspective, right? Community helps, being part of these gatherings helps, maybe having a friend with whom you can talk helps, but to actually see, oh, I'm learning. And of course, what this is pointing to is the possibility of learning every moment. That's the horizon of our practice. Easy to forget, isn't it? Easy to forget when there's some difficulty, you know. Or, as I think uh, one person um, has said I know who's actually present to this group, we may say to ourselves, another effing growth opportunity. And for those who are not native English speakers, the effing stands for a four letter word, which begins with F and ends with K. Okay, so anyway, um, we may say another effing growth opportunity. So we may not like that, but how can we keep that perspective of learning? That's what really can energize our practice tremendously, because even the most difficult situation can be one of learning. So then going further, how do we work with, let's say, uh, I'll mention a few things. How do we work with difficult emotions? How do we work with difficult thoughts, uh, judgmental thoughts? How do we work with difficult body states? So I'll mention a little bit about all of these, and then we'll open it up, and we may want, I may want to go further with this next time. I may, I'll, I'll see how far I get because I want to have time for discussion. So there are multiple ways, really, of working with difficult emotions and difficult thoughts. One really major way is working with mindfulness. It's helpful to know that typically... Uh, emotions like anger or fear um, are complex and for example anger is actually seen in all sorts of different ways. I think it's helpful to distinguish between anger for example and aggression. Anger can be seen simply as a raw energy of the emotion and doesn't necessarily involve hostility or aggression. So I want to distinguish between kind of that basic emotion of anger and then the way get that it gets, uh, let's say, brought into something reactive. You know, Maybe distinguish between anger as an emotion without reactivity and then how it can get turned into reactivity. There's actually a very helpful book that I may read from later which I've been reading, some of you may know it's recent. It's called "Love and Rage." Does anyone know that book? Very interesting book by Lama Rod Owens, and he actually makes the distinction between anger and rage. One way of doing it is saying that rage is something reactive, and that anger itself isn't necessarily reactive. you know, and I think when we're mindful of anger, sometimes we can feel simply the emotion of anger. Now, mindfulness can be really, really helpful when it's in the workable range. And I go back to an important point that I often make, which is that when we're working with difficult mind states, emotions, body states, it's really important to initially uh, clarify the level of intensity. And I use that Olympic diver Scale 1 to 10. It's very helpful to know that so we know, is this in the workable range? Is my anger, for example, a 10? So it's actually may, and has, may have reactivity, so it's more uh, going into the rage zone. Or is it more workable? You know, is my fear in the workable range? When it's in the workable range, maybe for some of us that could mean Four or five or six or seven, something like that. Mindfulness can be an amazing tool to work to work with our with a difficult emotion, and often in a difficult interaction with someone, where I have anger, or I have fear or anxiety, or maybe sadness. It's really important to do my own inner work with that, especially if it's a kind of an ongoing relationship. And we can do this in several ways. One is by being mindful when the emotion comes up in our meditation or during the flow of the day. And we, it's helpful when that's happening to know that we're angry, to name, to name the anger, to know that we want to be mindful So it means not to necessarily get caught up in the story. It's very helpful to see, be with something like anger at the level of the body. See what's there, sometimes heat, sometimes even a little bit of shaking. Very helpful to be there at the level of the emotions, be with the anger. What is the emotional energy of anger like? then also to be there at the level of the mind, to notice how, uh, what the thoughts are. Am I caught in a judgmental narrative that I'm repeating over and over again? To know that. And one way to work with anger, if it's there for a while, maybe I meditate and I, something really hard happened yesterday and I feel anger for 10 minutes and I'm in my meditation. To go actually take some time. What's it like in the body? Maybe a minute or two. Then go to the emotional level. Then notice the thoughts. Again, this can take... We need some stability to do that. Uh, So one very crucial point is also stay with the emotion. Could be fear or anger, anxiety, sadness. Stay with the emotion and notice if the emotion changes. Our emotional lives, in our emotional lives, many of the emotions are interrelated. A lot of my anger may be connected with something that's actually beneath my anger, something that I'm actually not in touch with. A lot of anger is because something happened that was not okay, maybe a value was violated. A norm was violated. A lot of my anger about society may be very, very similar. And often, when I become judgmental, I'm actually being driven by something beneath the surface. A lot of the judgmental mind and a lot of anger is driven by unacknowledged pain and unacknowledged emotions, unacknowledged or unprocessed. And so when we engage in mindfulness, sometimes we can actually start processing and come to that pain. You know, um, one example, uh, somewhat traumatic, I had a, a retreat. This was a while ago. This was about 30 years ago. I had a retreat which taught me so much about anger. I was in a retreat and I was angry for 10 days in a row, 16 hours a day. Pretty good for someone who suppressed anger as a kid, (laughs) right? Uh, I I didn't give myself a pat on the back, but I could have. You know, there there it was. Anger was fully there virtually all the day, uh, every day for quite a while. It was in the workable range, which made it possible. If it had been a nine or a 10, that wouldn't have been possible. It was in probably the six or seven level. And so I was able to be mindful of it. One of the things that was really interesting was very often when, when I, and the, the anger was actually connected with me uh, being angry at the teachers of the retreat and the way the retreat was being taught. It was, a, it was a meditation retreat, mindfulness retreat. And I was angry because I had actually just come from living for about seven years in uh, Ohio and Kentucky, being you know and being very interested, how can I really bring spiritual practice into everyday life in the middle of America? Right? And and I was a little concerned that at the retreat, or I was a lot concerned, at the retreat people were being treated almost as if they were monks or nuns and we weren't paying much attention to daily life and how things were and I had been at many retreats and hadn't had that kind of reaction before, but there it was. In that retreat, I was uh, getting really angry. Uh, Jack Cornfield was the main teacher. I talked with him, and he said, I can um, understand and sympathize with a lot of what you're angry about, but you have a choice. You can either watch your anger or go home. And I decided to stay. He gave me some guidance. One of the main guidance he gave was, watch what happens when anger shifts to another emotion. And I found that when I watched it, sometimes it shifted to sadness. And I would notice, oh, I'm sad. Oh, I have these views which I think are important and about daily life and so forth and no one's listening to me and I feel sadness about that. And sometimes I'd be with the anger and then I'd feel the sadness. Sometimes I'd stay with the sadness enough and it would turn into love. Oh, I really care about this community, right? That was pretty amazing to find that a lot of my anger had some unacknowledged pain beneath it. And then even beneath the pain was care and love. I think that's a general formula for anger when we work with it skillfully. We'll be able eventually to come to love, incredibly important for uh, activists who are often very angry. I think that if activists could touch the level of love, then everything changes. This is actually was the understanding that Dr. Martin Luther King had. He said, the center of our movement is the skillful transformation of anger. And at the center of our movement is action based on love right? It's also very close to what you find, I think, in that book, Love and Rage, right? That anger is often about not really feeling the hurt that's beneath the surface. And when we feel that, and then even go further, there can be love. So that's, that can be a formula for working with the inner practices like that. And there's a sense that we can touch the pain and then somehow release it into skillful action. That's a short version. And that's actually, I wanted to say, that's what my dream was about. Last night I had this dream that was very interesting. I think this was maybe more in an activist context, but I had a dream. And the one I remembered was with with other people, I was walking in circles, walking in circle, maybe a circle around in a, city, I think. And I was walking in a circle with other people and we we were walking and maybe the whole circle would take 10 minutes to complete. And we kept on walking in the circle. And as I was walking, I was continually doing this two-part sequence, putting my hands to my eyes and then releasing them. And in my understanding of the dream, putting my hands to my eyes was touching the pain in some way not obvious, but that's how it, that's how it came to me. That's, and it's my dream. I get the, I have the right to interpret it. <laughs> okay. So, um, any case that I had that sense that I was, that, that there was this need to continually touch the pain, release it, touch the pain, release it over and over and over again. So that can be a formula, you know, and I, I think I'm, I'm noticing the time we're getting near the end of the time I wanted to have time for discussion. But maybe just to say one or two more things and then I'll, then I'll finish. Uh, and I didn't get to talk some about the judgmental mind, but we, what we want to do with mindfulness of difficult thoughts or emotions is stay with it. This would be true for judgmental mind as well. And especially come into what's there in the body and notice how things change, not to be caught up in the narrative too much. One practice is, that can be very helpful, maybe we'll even just do this for a moment right now, bring to mind something, uh, an instance of you being judgmental towards yourself, towards another, towards uh, a public figure, and bring it to mind Bring a situation in which you were judgmental to mind and let it be there maybe for 30 or 40 seconds as if you were reliving it. You know, it can be... Just, Just let that be there for 30 or 40 seconds right now. Now bring your attention into your body in the area around the heart and just see what happens. Anything could happen, not to plan what happens. Just be there with with your body, more or less in the heart area, could be in the gut and heart area, and, and just stay with that for about a minute now. See what happens. Thank you. And so how many people experienced uh, some significant sensation in your body area, in your chest? How many people experienced an emotion that came through? Yeah. And so that can happen. This I call this the the dropping down practice. It's a main technique I use in working with the judgmental mind. And maybe I think I'll go more into it next time. But it's one of the techniques, What very important when we're one of the things that can happen with difficult speech situations is we get totally caught up in the narrative, right? That person messed up. That's not right. Blah, blah, blah. I'm right, etc. Or I'm wrong. And we get caught up in the narrative. It's helpful. To do this at the end, maybe, of a mindfulness period. Relive the experience and then bring the attention into the body. And this can be a way sometimes of accessing emotions or what's there. Sometimes even that wouldn't be known. So I think there's more that I was gonna bring in today that I'll, that I'll go to next week. It's a rich area. Let me finish, I'll finish with uh, a quote I had. Uh, this is from Brian Swim, who's a physicist. Some of you may know, he's actually someone I, I've worked with some and got to know. And he, he's uh, worked with Thomas Berry, uh, and uh, developed something called the universe story. That's one of his books, I think, trying to give a new model of evolution. Anyway, here's what he said. This is from a, a physicist. The universe shivers with wonder in the depth of the human. The universe shivers with wonder in the depth of the human. I won't interpret it. That's for you. Okay. Uh, So let me invite you now, all of us, just take a moment to see what was important for you from our session. Maybe something related to the talk or to something which may have come up anyway. Maybe even distinct from the talk. And then the invitation for next time, hopefully many of us can come next time, the invitation is to do skillful inner work with difficult thoughts, emotions, or body states, which may come up in the next week. And again, you can use mindfulness, you can use the dropping down practice. There are other practices I was going to give, but you can use those two as a start and work with. So just if if you can... See what your own intention is. Does that resonate with you? What's your own intention for, you know, for doing uh, inner work with what's challenging? Okay, and now let's... uh, Let's open things up to any discussion, uh, comments, uh, questions. And we'll take some time. And you can do that either by using the raised hand function, and then Levi would uh, recognize you, or you can put a question into the chat as well. Any reflections or questions you can use, again, the raised hand function is under participants. And you, you click on that, and it gives you the option of raised hand. And then we would have a cue, because I can't... If I just was seeing 25 people, I, we could do it with the literal raised hand, but we need to use that, so because I can't see everyone. Probably many of us know how to do that from time on Zoom. Comments, questions, something to share... And again, you could put your question in the chat. It could be read if you don't want to uh, speak. Okay, we have, uh, why don't you invite the first one, Levi?
1: Nancy, I'm going to invite you to unmute. Um, I picked up on something right from the very beginning of... The uh, the talk, Donald, and it's about having a good intention. I, I had I had a conversation with my husband over something that was very simple, but had big implications to it. And when I went into the conversation, I guess I didn't have a really clear intention, and so the fruits of it, the result of the conversation was not helpful at all. And so what I I would like to do is I would like to go back to my husband and redo that conversation with him. And before I do it, to really understand what my intention is. Is my intention to understand him? Is my intention to change him? Is my intention to well, and I'm sure there are a number of other possibilities that could be there. But if, I, I think that conversation would have gone a lot better had I understood what my intentions were before I started.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Nancy. So crucial. And especially when things are challenging or difficult, right? Because, again, we, we, we may think, uh, I have right on my side. Therefore, whatever I say is okay. Well... That can be a formula for a relationship getting worse, right? Uh, it's important to bring out my points, but what's my intention? Is it to win, to for the other person to acknowledge, uh, you know, you were right, I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> to sign a uh, confession, and so forth. So thank you. Really, really crucial. Our practice rides on the uh, tip of intention. Yeah. Thank you.
1: Up next is Michael. I'm going to invite you to unmute.
2: Hi. Um. I. I. Um, thank you for this. This talk's been really helpful, and some of the. The uh, remarks she made about being conflict avoidant, <clears throat> um, and what happens, what's in the back of that, you know, mm-hmm. the conditioning, things that have happened. Yeah, and yeah. I brought to mind some wine, some, uh, some conflict I'm having, kind of, with my family of origin, folks, over this polarity that's out there, um, because they're, you know, mostly belong to the evangelical. Uh, group and I found that a lot of um, the obsessive uh, discussions that I have in my head going round and round in circles uh, what came to me today was in some ways I'm trying to find a way I'm rehearsing to try to find a breakthrough in a way that's safe enough that doesn't feel like it will just Explode. Um, there's also trying to be right. <laughs> there's also all of that you know that's going going along with it. There's unresolved hurt for some uh, past things that happened that haven't you know I haven't processed. So there's a lot of stuff that a lot of pressure behind some of those perseverant loops that I get caught up in um, why they're so hard to kind of let go of or, um, you know, break out of. Um, yeah. There was something else. <clears throat> I can't remember what the thought is now, but there was another thing about this, this, oh, the feeling of not being heard
0: yeah.
2: feels like a constriction at the throat. You know, when I was dropping in, I could feel the pressure in my chest, as well as yeah. feeling of almost being, you know, constricted there.
0: Yeah, very, very good <laughs> to very good to notice that, Michael. Thank you. And um, how many can relate in different ways to what Michael said? So I think it, I think you're speaking for a lot of people. And um, I wanted to first uh, add something which I did not bring up in my talk, but that's quite important, which is that one of the ways that we prepare to be more skillful with difficult situations is by doing a lot of practice with the sort of the uh, with those eight guidelines i mentioned in terms of uh, less difficult situations a lot of us we we don't really attend too much to low level disagreements or conflicts and all of a sudden, oh, once there's something really, really hard, oh, I need to deal with it, you know, bring my practice to it. So it's very important to know that we build the muscle by doing, using all of these tools with things which are not as intense. And that will give us uh, more of the capacity then to bring to harder things. So that's a really uh, crucial point, which again, uh, ten, we tend not to do. Um, And then, uh, secondly, I think in terms of what we were focusing on, what I was focusing on today, I think I would encourage that, you know, that inner work with some of the things that you were describing, that it sounds like you have some access to. In other words, if you can touch your sense of hurt or for not feeling heard, if you can actually touch that and feel that there can be some sadness, some grief. You might even, might even do a little bit of a ritual of mourning, right? Because I'm sure these are very uh, long-standing patterns, right? And to, uh, to acknowledge that, to touch that, to the extent that you touch your own pain, you will tend to be less reactive and more skillful. Not easy. you know. We have all sorts of defense mechanisms to avoid touching our pain. But uh, that inner work with the emotions, with that sense of hurt and pain, will, in the long run, make a difference. And then, also, I think what I'll, I don't know if I'll get to it next week in further depth, but the practice of empathy is going to be really, really crucial. Understanding, I've mentioned from time to time the work of David Camp, C A M P T. I did a training with once, who said that the practice of empathy is central for working with uh, uh, political polarization, right? And it means trying to understand. Typically, there's some significant value, even if you don't agree with the analysis. There's some significant value that's there that you can have. Oh, yeah, okay, you want, uh, you want security or whatever it is. Yeah. Okay. Maybe one more and then we'll, I think we'll have to finish in terms of time.
1: Hi, Donald. I just wanted to say thank you so much for this wonderful talk. It was so relevant and I took lots of notes. (laughs) You initially talked about different reasons why people have problems with uh, why speech. And one of them that you mentioned was confidence and fear, or the lack of confidence to provide answers correctly and being right. paralyzed. Right. I so relate to that. There's so many things that I've wanted to say to people, but I was so afraid that I wasn't going to say it correctly and it was going to be taken right. the wrong way. Right. Yeah. Did you already discuss that in a previous in a previous uh, session?
0: I, I didn't because that was actually a point that was brought up by uh, one of the people in the group last time it wasn't my point originally brought up it was when i was giving that list i was uh, i went back and i uh, got made a list based on the recording of what people had said so, you know about about 10 things so um that's a big one too and you know issues yes. of Confidence, or there are a lot of dimensions to that, but again, we could do inner work with that. You know, oh, that it, would be marvelous. Yeah, it might, it might, some of it could be done with mindfulness, but it'd be really, some of it could be uh, related to the work I do on the judgmental mind. There could be very long standing patterns, what I call limiting beliefs about yes. myself, that uh, can really be shifted, but they can take some time to do that. It can take some time to do that. But all of this is 100% workable. That's the the good news. Thank Thank you, you. Noel.
1: Thank you so much. It was a great talk today. I took lots of notes.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Did we have, I think, uh, Levi, are you okay with taking one more?
1: I'm great if you are. Lynn has a question. Okay,
0: we'll, we'll we'll have Lynn be the last one. I think you have to unmute, Lynn.
1: You're right. Thank you. Uh, Mostly this is a big thank you, big gratitude. And also, I just wanted to say that I was very touched by your dream. Yeah. And I I realized that that's what I've been living through and especially conscious of this past week of touching into the pain and, and grief and feeling it, allowing it to come forward. And then, you know, the aspect of releasing it. and and how that can almost become a path in itself and trying to discover what that path is for me. And and for me, my mind tends to go, you know, to the relative and the ultimate without wanting to create a spiritual bypass.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I just wanted to thank you for naming it.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Lynn. There's, there's a lot there. And I, I want to acknowledge that when I was talking about touch and release, that there's a lot more that needs to be said there that, actually had in my notes, but I didn't get to in terms of time right. and um, and some of it, some of it had to do with some of this, I think can occur individually. Some of it might occur uh, being helped by a mentor or a guide or a coach or therapist. and some of it can happen best in groups. you know i i I've done a lot of work with Joanna Macy, for example. Who has, I think, very deeply relevant work now that I was going to bring up, and I'll do that next time, in which uh, some of the difficult emotions and thoughts related to the larger social world, it's it can be most helpful when we when we uh, touch those and acknowledge them and say them in a group. It could be a small group of. 10 people or 20 or 30 or whatever. But uh, that's an area that Joanna Macy's pioneered for a long time, 30 or 40 years. And it can be very, very crucial because uh, some of this seems easier to access at times in a group context, you know, but uh, yeah, I'll see. uh, I'll invite further dreams tonight and (laughs) see what happens. That was cool. I don't know when the last time was I shared a dream from the night before, in in a session. So I I enjoyed that and uh, pretty simple, but I think it got at something crucial. Yeah. So anyway, thanks everyone, and let's um, let's go back now and again uh, come back to your intention uh, for the next week. Could be related to our theme and doing inner work with challenging situations or what's there, but something else may have come to you that's different. So see what your intention is for your practice going forward. And then we we finish with a traditional dedication of merit. May our time together be of benefit to us. May that benefit be shared with those in our lives, in our own circles. And then may we offer the benefit beyond our own circles, out into the larger world, and offer the benefits of our time together to all beings, always remembering that all beings includes us. So thank you very much and hope to see uh, many of you next time. And uh, be well, and we can, if people want to stay on now, it's one of the parts of the gathering that I really like, we can stay on and just say hi to each other. I'll stay on for a while. We can, Levi, you can unmute everyone. And you can say, we can say hi and goodbye.
1: Hi. Hi. and goodbye.
0: <laughs>
1: bye, bye, bye. Thank you, Daniel. Yeah. Oh, Daniel. Daniel so much. Thank, thank, you. thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank, thank, thank you. you. Bye bye. Till next
1: time. Thank you.
0: thank you. I didn't thank Levi. Thank you, Levi, so much. Thank you, Levi. Wonderful. Thank you, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you everyone. Okay. Okay. Bye bye for now. Bye bye. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye. Bye everyone.
2: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit DharmaSeed.org slash donate.